Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You are Locked On Clippers, your daily Los Angeles Clippers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Locked on Clippers. I'm your host, Lucas Han. It is Monday, January 9th. We're kicking off the week with the Clippers on a roll. But they're on a roll. They're not on a streak. It's time to go streaking when they win their next game. Because, as J.J. Reddick says, it's not a streak until five. So I'll say that they're on a roll. They're hot. They're playing well. But it's not a streak until five. You know, my preference is... Clippers win one game, they're on a one-game winning streak, but according to JJ, you got to get five. But when you look ahead, I think, you know, the Clippers should get into where JJ would be comfortable with us calling it a streak because their next game isn't until Wednesday against the Orlando Magic. Um, And of their next seven games after, you know, including that, their next seven games after yesterday's win against Miami, six of them are against teams that you know you you really want to beat teams that are fluttering around or below 500 Orlando the Lakers Minnesota Denver Atlanta Philly you know after the two slip-ups that the Clippers have had um the first one being the late November road trip kind of stumbling into early December where they lost some games just because of low energy low effort the second one being the six game losing streak when Chris was injured after those two slip-ups, you put yourself in a position where you have to win these games, these six games, games like this. Because you look back at the end of every year, and every team, even the best teams, always lose some games that there's just no excuse for. You look back, and it's not its not like, oh, well, we should have beaten this team, but we just couldn't buy a shot, or someone had the flu, or... We were at the end of a road trip and everyone was tired. Sometimes every year you look back and there are games when you just don't play well. You don't play good basketball. You don't have energy. And there's not always a built-in excuse for it. The Clippers have used up their allowance. (laughs) They've used up their allowance for those games. Um, And so now you have to win games against Orlando and Minnesota and Denver and Atlanta. You you don't have any choice if you want to be competitive for that three seed and avoid a second round matchup with the Warriors. Um, Now, I listed six of the next seven games. The seventh is against the Oklahoma City Thunder. That game's next Monday, so one week from today, and that's going to be the toughest game that the Clippers play in the next two weeks. Really, it should be the only 
tough game they play in the next two weeks. I'm sure some of the other ones will be close. They're not going to have six blowouts, but OKC is the one that they're going to have to play well to win. Um, and they need to win because once you get out of this seven-game stretch, they have a few days off, and then on January 28th, they play the Golden State Warriors, and then on February 2nd, they play the Golden State Warriors. So if you're thinking you might lose those two games, now all of a sudden, seven in a row right now, losing those two games, and then hopefully you beat Phoenix, which the Clippers play the Suns in between those two Warriors games. Now you're talking about eight and two in your next 10, which actually, you know, it's good, but it's not great. So a seven game winning streak starting today, that really would be an 11 game winning streak when you patch it with the four games they've won so far. You come out of an 11 game winning streak, you lose both those games against the Warriors and okay, you've won eight of your last 10. You're not making up that much ground on Houston. Um, And to make it even worse, the first Warriors game is part of a five-game road trip. The second Warriors game is the one home game that's between that five-game road trip and another five-game road trip that the team has before the All-Star break. Um, so anytime you have a five-game road trip, it's hard. Anytime you have 10 of 11 games on the road, it's hard. Anytime you have to play Golden State twice in that stretch, it makes it even harder. And, you know, just to cause... Another problem for the Clippers, they start off that second road trip with a back-to-back in Boston and Toronto. It's not that I'm preemptively making excuses and claiming schedule losses for the team, but this is the type of thing that they they have to plan for because if they're going to lose games, and they are going to lose more games this year, you have to say, okay, we might lose a game in that Boston-Toronto back-to-back, so we can't afford to lose to Orlando on a Wednesday night in mid-January when we've coming off of two days of rest. Um, and then, you know, the Clippers come out of the All-Star break and immediately play a in Golden State home versus the Spurs back-to-back, which is probably the only way you could imagine a harder back-to-back would be to flip those two games where you're playing at home versus the Spurs and then in Golden State the second night. But still, that opens the door for two losses immediately to kickstart that backstretch of the season. Um So that's why, for me, when you look ahead in the medium term, you have to consider the short-term must-win games. You have to have a serious winning streak here because the going is going to get rough after that January 24th game in Philly. And if the Clippers can carry an 11-game winning streak into Golden State on the 28th, you're in a situation where you're showing that you're serious about the three seed. You're hoping that you can actually knock off Golden State and you're playing well, you know, an 11 game winning streak is no joke for any team. And it kind of puts the Clippers back on the map after they've sputtered in recent weeks. If you want to be there for that Clippers winning streak or see any of the games, SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to find tickets for the games you want to see up close and in person this season. There's nothing like being at the game for the biggest plays of the year. And with SeatGeek, it's never been easier to get the seats you want for a great value. SeatGeek has the best deals on every ticket in the house, wherever you want to sit, whether that's courtside, the club seats, or the upper level. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats for any game this weekend. With SeatGeek, you always get the best deal on every ticket, because SeatGeek price compares for you by searching multiple ticket sites. 
Prices can vary depending on where you shop, but SeatGeek will always find you the lowest available price. Best of all is that my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code LOCLIPPERS, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code LOCLIPPERS today. Now, I have a couple different notes I want to um, briefly address in the in the latter portion of this episode. Um, the first, the, the more minor one definitely is just to talk about the Clippers press conferences. Um, and I, I mentioned this on Twitter yesterday. Does any other team in the NBA or in, in sports have as many cute kids at their press conferences as the Clippers do? Because we've got Blake's son, Ford, who's, who's made appearances in the past. Um, Chris Paul's son, little Chris, is famous for his press conferences appearances. Um, you probably remember he makes the Blake face at the camera. He does the, the stare down that Blake does sometimes at you know tense moments toward, toward opponents. Um, J.J. Redick brought his son Knox to the podium yesterday, and it's hilarious. Knox is playing games on J.J.'s phone while J.J.'s answering questions. Um, and, I mean, people... I know I'm not alone in thinking that, that it's incredibly cute because I, I tweeted out a picture of it. And it's like, I think the most popular tweet that I've ever had. Um, and it was just, no, you know, not some cunning analysis or anything. It was just a picture of, of JJ and his son sitting at the podium. Um, and something, I, one that I think is a little off the radar and underrated, but incredibly adorable is Jamal Crawford and his son, Eric. Eric just seems like when, when he's up there with Jamal, he just seems like such a quiet kid. He just seems like such a, such a good, nice kid. It's so cute. And so I don't, I mean, does any other team have four different important players, each with their own cute kid, just at that right age, that the player is good enough to be getting on the press room podium and they, they're bringing their kid in and the kid is the right age where it's cute. That's four, four different ones. I, you know, I don't think that that's, that can't be common. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe I don't want to read too much into it other than that. It's, it's a fun fact and it certainly makes, um, it makes the press conferences enjoyable. I think for everyone, I think it adds, you know, just having the families present and everything. But, um, it says something about the maturity and age of this team too, that even Blake, who you might normally consider to be one of the, maybe we have this notion in our head, you know, as Clippers fans, if we've been watching him since he first came into the league, maybe we have a notion that he's maybe one of the younger, more wild players, but here he is with his little son sitting on his lap in the press conference. And the guys that the team is built around who are leaders in the locker room um, are family men. And that's not to say that a guy like DeAndre Jordan can't be a leader, but it's just, I don't know. I think it's good. I think it's good for a team's culture to have, to have those guys around guys with families, to have the kids around. I think it adds a lot um, to a locker room and to a team's culture. Um, But that's just a brief note. That's just something I want to point out because I don't know if that's something that, that everyone gets to see because not everyone's in the press conferences and they only show bits on TV, but um, moving back over to, towards basketball, one thing that I think I wanted to talk about today was how Jamal Crawford has played lately because it hasn't been good. 
Um, and that's going to have, I think, some implications short, medium, and long-term for the Clippers. So Doc told us in the press conference yesterday that when they found out Austin Rivers was going to miss the game against the Heat with the flu, Doc and the coaching staff told Jamal that they would need him to step up offensively. Basically, the rationale is that normally they can rely on Chris, they can rely on JJ. Austin and Jamal are a little more inconsistent, but they can pretty much bet that between Austin and Jamal, they're going to get some good production from one or both of those guys. So Austin's out. You're still playing without Blake, of course. So yeah, they told Jamal, we need your offense tonight. We need you to step up. Um, and he shot one for 12 from the field, which obviously is, is not stepping up. Um, and even, you know, it's, I, I've criticized Jamal's shot selection a lot over the five years he's been with the team. Um, and I'm not going to recant that, but I am going to say that in recent games, it feels like even when he's taking good shots, even when, you know, he, he, he had a, at least one play that I can vividly remember where he came off of a screen moving towards the left and pulled up for a wide open jump shot. And it, you know, if watching that play, you can't, you can't possibly want more from the offense than to generate a Jamal Crawford wide open 18 footer, even though, you know, mid range shots aren't super efficient. It's like, if he's open, if he's in rhythm, there's no one within five feet of the guy and he missed it badly. Um, and now that, that's just one of his one for 12 night. And by my count, just a quick count, looking at the box scores, he's made 23 of his 84 shots in the Clippers last seven games. That's 27%. His game against Miami dropped him down to 40.1% for the season, which means he's literally two missed shots away from dropping underneath the 40% threshold, which it's like 40, I mean, 40% from the field is bad, but it's almost like, you know, the same reason people value a triple double so much more than 11 rebounds and nine assists, because you have to draw the line somewhere and triple double is a clean number. 40% from the field is bad. And so is 41% and so is 42% really. But it's almost like once you, once a player gets under 40% from the field, now you know there's like a serious problem because NBA players on decent sample sizes shouldn't be under 40% from the field unless they're guys who are like a 38% three-point shooter who only ever shoots threes. But if there's a healthy balance, you really shouldn't be getting under 40% from the field. And Jamal Crawford's right on the fringe of that. Um, and his three-point percentage is below 33%, and that's the same type of deal where when a player gets below 33, you really start to, to take a second look and worry. And so his numbers are creeping downwards towards the 2015 season, which was his worst with the Clippers, where he shot 39.6% from the field and 32.7% from three. Um, he hasn't really had an efficient year since his first year with the Clippers, when and that's not even... You know, 44% from the field isn't efficient, but it's okay. And 38% from deep is good. So you live with that. Um, but seeing him down at like 40% and 32%, it's just bad. If if possessions are ending with a 40% shooter, 
it's a bad possession. You're only getting 0.8 points per possession. You don't, it's just bad. It's not a recipe for success. Um, and so, you know, that's not, obviously Jamal's had a bad last seven games, as I pointed out, and that doesn't define him as a player. Um, there's a reason he's 27% over the last seven games, but still at 40% for the year. It's because he's played 32 other ones where he's done better than that. But it's a worrisome trend on a few different levels. The first of which being that for the next week or two weeks or month, however long Blake Griffin is out, the Clippers are going to continue leaning heavily on Jamal Crawford. Um, a big part of the reason why he won the sixth man of the year award last year, even though he didn't have a super efficient season, in my mind, the reason he deserved that award, or at least deserves to be a leading candidate for it, was because he was essentially the Clippers' number two offensive player for half the season while Blake was out. And even though he wasn't super efficient, I don't know where the team would have gotten those shots without him. So at that point, 0.8 points per possession becomes a little more palatable than when you don't even know if you're going to be able to get a shot off without that guy on the floor. Um, and that's how I felt at times last season. And he actually, he, he played better when Blake was out too. He stepped up because, you know, whatever combination of factors it was, he did step up while Blake was out. And in the short term, the team needs that again, or they'd at least benefit from having that again. He's less important, just like anyone, any bench player is less important when all the starters are healthy because your role is mitigated. Jamal might go from 15 shots to 11 shots, depending on if Blake is playing or not playing. But if, you know, when, when he's playing, when he's getting those 15 shots, a three for 15 performance really wipe. It hurts you. It hurts you badly as a team. If he's only getting 11 shots, then maybe when he's having a slow night, he shoots even less than 11 times. So he might go two for eight. That's not so bad. Two for, I mean, it's a bad game, but it doesn't cripple your offense. A three for 15, when you don't have anywhere else for those 15 shots to go, that cripples your offense. Um, now in the medium term, you just have to think about what is Jamal Crawford going to bring to the Clippers this season? If he's able to bounce back from this, is he really declining per se, or is it a slow stretch? Um, and I'm not pretending to know the answer to that. I think that's something that we're just going to have to wait and see. I'd be shocked if this sort of this 27% that we've seen the last seven games, I'd be shocked if that continues, but I wouldn't be shocked if he finishes the season under 40% from the field. And if your main guy off the bench is a shooting under 40% from the field, you don't have a very good bench. Um, you know, he's, he's the main cog of that bench unit, even though I think Austin Rivers is a better player right now. Jamal is what the offense of that second unit is built around. And as he goes, the unit goes. If he's hot, the unit's playing well. If he's cold, the unit's not going to have a great year or have a great second half of the year. And I don't think Doc Rivers is in a position where he's willing to bench Jamal Crawford if he's not playing well. Because 
you could conceivably get to a situation where the playoffs roll around and it's time to trim down your rotation and okay you're going to leave Mo Spates as your backup five obviously are you going to play three guards off the bench in the postseason and if you aren't the obvious choice to sit right would be Raymond Felton because he's the minimum guy and Jamal and Austin are both on big contracts, but if Raymond Felton is helping the team win more than Jamal Crawford is, which has been the case recently, are you going to bench the guy who's making $14 million a year and has two more years left on his deal? That's troubling. It's re- it's troubling. It's the same problem I think that the Doc had early on with Wesley Johnson, where Wesley hasn't played well, but you have to be careful in these January games giving 12 minutes to Wesley Johnson when he's not playing well might not mean very much, but not giving 12 minutes to Wesley Johnson after you just gave him three years and $18 million in July means a lot. It means a lot when you give a guy three years, $18 million in July and by December and January, he's not playing and you have minimum guys playing ahead of him. Um, and then long-term, the problem with, with Jamal is that the Clippers assumed that both the Rivers and Crawford contracts, when they signed them this summer, would be movable because both of them had higher offers from other teams. So it makes sense. If Philadelphia is offering Jamal $20 million a year because they're that desperate for him and you sign him for $14 million, you should be able to move him. That's That shouldn't be too tough. But that assumes that his value remains somewhat constant, or at least doesn't dip too much. And if he finishes the season under 40% from the field, there might there literally might not be any market for him at all. I'm not sure that Philadelphia, Philadelphia might love the idea of Jamal Crawford if he's shooting 42% from the field and making 35% of his threes. But if he's shooting... 39% from the field and 32% from three and he's a year older and they're a year further along with their rebuild and they have a new young guard that they drafted that they want to get playing time he, he just becomes less attractive and that's the case all around the league the worse he plays the worse his trade value is the harder it becomes to move that contract for a guy in his mid to late 30s making eight figures now the advantage for Crawford is that the third year of the deal is only $3 million guaranteed, which is chump change in the new the new era of the super high NBA cap. So by the time we get to July, Jamal Crawford's basically an expiring deal, or it's basically a team option for the second year. But you're still going to be committing a lot of money to a guy who you have to wonder if he can really play, and if the Clippers get to a point where they bench Crawford and he's not in the playoff rotation, a team would have to be committing to trading for and paying a lot of money to a guy who had just gotten benched in the playoffs. So there's a lot there's a lot at stake in Jamal Crawford's play in the coming in the coming weeks and months. Because if he's really done, like if he's toast, if he's Paul Pierce toast, and I don't think he's that bad, but if he's not gonna be the Jamal we know anymore, if he's not going to be able to shoot 40% from the field without adjusting his game, the Clippers could be in trouble because I don't know that he'll ever adjust his game. He might play Jamal ball until he's done, 
Now, the good news, at least, is that Austin Rivers' contract is looking pretty good about now. But those are my concerns. Those are my concerns with, with Jamal Crawford in the short, medium, and long term. Now, it's possible that he comes back, finally refines his shot selection, starts shooting on spot-up threes and letting the offense run through Felton and Jam- um, and Austin a little bit more. His minutes go down. He's a little more focused off the ball on defense. That's all possible. Those are These are things that he's capable of. He can make catch-and-shoot threes at an elite rate. He can make a play here and there on the weak side. He certainly can find DeAndre Jordan on the pick-and-roll. But if he doesn't cut a lot of the crap out of his game, the contested, off-the-dribble, long twos, the efficiency is going to be so far down that he's hurting the team more than he's helping it with the catch-and-shoot threes and the drive to the bucket and the dump-offs to DeAndre for dunks. And as long as he's hurting the team more than he's helping it, it's going to be hard for Doc to keep him on the floor in the playoffs. It's going to be hard for the team to move him if they have to for cap reasons down the stretch. Um, Now, just to close out the show, I want to just note that I have been getting emails from some of you guys. Um, I really appreciate it. It's awesome. I love getting emails. I love hearing from people on Twitter. Um, If you don't know how to reach me, my email is lhan.clipsnation at gmail.com. You can tweet at me at lucasjhan or at clipsnationsbn. You can pop onto clipsnation.com and leave a comment. You can send a message to Clips Nation on Facebook. Um, I'm everywhere. I'm pretty much everywhere. And I'm I'm reachable. I try to respond. Um, now, I'd like to do, you know, mailbag episodes or maybe a mailbag segment. Um, some of the stuff I've gotten so far is a little heavy. I had a, a great email from Christina Lin, really great and thought-provoking um, from, yeah, Christina Lin, who's a listener. But it's heavy. It's about playoff seeding and um, the Clippers' mental mental mindset when they go up against the Warriors. And that's, you know, I could do an episode. I could do a column. I could do a whole entire podcast just on the Clippers and how they play against the Warriors and how that factors into playoff seeding and what playoff seeding they should want to get. It's incredibly complex. I did a a back and forth article with Aditya, who's um, one of the editors at Clips Nation. We did a back and forth, just an email chain that we published as an article last week, and we barely even scratched the surface of of all the intricacies about how the Clippers play against the Warriors, if it's better to play them in the second round or try to avoid them until the Western Conference Finals, if the Clippers can still even get to the three seed. And if they can't, should they try to drop all the way back to six so that they don't have to play the one seed in the second round? And San Antonio is only one loss behind Golden State. So are the Clippers, is is the one four matchup going to be someone against Golden State at number one or someone against San Antonio at number one? We don't, it seems like Golden State's going to win out, but we don't know that yet. Um, I had another email from Ryan Nock talking about the same, you know, trying to beat the Warriors and, and trades. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I try to respond to everyone's emails. I try to get back to everyone on Twitter. Um, 
obviously if you have a question it's better to hit me when it's not in the middle of a game because I get a lot more tweets during games than I do just during the day um but yeah if you know if you want me to do like a brief mailbag type episode I really enjoy that send me just some quick questions and I love to go over it um otherwise I'll keep responding to everyone's emails and all this stuff that you guys ask about um like seeding and matching up through the Warriors and potential trades. This is all stuff that that we're going to talk about just naturally over the course of the coming weeks because how can we not be talking about the trades when there's like five weeks until the trade deadline? How can we not be talking about seeding when that's literally it's going to determine the fate of this team is can they catch Houston for the three? Should they drop back and tank? Who are they going to play in the first round? Who are they going to play in the second round? This is all crucial stuff to determining if the team can reach their goals. Um, so yeah, this is, this is all stuff we're going to talk about. I get back to everyone's emails. I get back to people on Twitter. Um, so keep reaching out to me. I enjoy it. All right. This is Lucas Hand signing off for Lockdown Clippers. I'll see you guys tomorrow. For this podcast comes from Dice.com, the career hub for tech. With their new salary predictor, Dice makes it easier for you to understand how much your skills are worth. They'll even show you which skills are most likely to increase your pay. And with over 70,000 tech jobs, you'll be able to put those skills to good use when you find your next role. Dice is always free for job seekers, so visit Dice.com slash can you hack it to see how you can start hacking your career today.